I remember handing me these gorgeous hand-drawn sketches of a furniture piece. And he's like, build this. And he would just leave. He'd go off somewhere. It kind of started a pattern of learning that way. Where mm -hmm. There'd be some audacious goal. And I would just have to step up to the challenge of meeting it. And then have to find a way to get there, which would involve getting help or sometimes cutting corners or just finding a way to get it done. That's Ken Tomita, the co-founder of GroveMade. He's describing how an early mentor taught him critical woodworking skills by sometimes leaving him alone and basically not teaching him at all. Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked is my guest, Ken Tomita, the co-founder of GroveMade. They make accessories to build your dream workspace so you could get your best work done. I found GroveMade from being on the Blackwing Pencil Company's Instagram page, of course, and I was like, whoa, what is this stuff? Calling them workspace accessories is doing them a disservice somehow. Their stuff is beautiful, and I've been hooked on decking out my office space with their beautifully crafted monitor shelves and headphone stands and leather-bound notebooks. Needless to say, I'm now obsessed, and now I had to get them on the show. But aside from all that, I think that this will be an important episode for anyone who's at this professional crossroads in their life, because Ken's story about how he found his way and honed a skill is a great lesson in listening to your intuition and being truly open to where it can take you. So let's dig in. Everybody, this is Ken Tomita. He is co-founder of GroveMade, and I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell you a little bit about who he is and really what GroveMade is and what GroveMade does. So why don't we start, Ken, by you just telling everybody who you are. Let's go there. Okay. Well, without going too long-winded, uh, I'm from Japan originally. We have all the time in the world, so you go for <laughs> it. Okay. And my mom tells me um, when we immigrated to America, I was had a backpack on with my diapers in it. I carried my own diapers. I think I was <laughs> one or two. <laughs> um, but I've spent most of my life in Portland, Oregon, uh, which is where we're currently located now. I'm a Northwest Northwest guy. My educational background is I'm an architecture school dropout, fell in love with furniture and sculpture and ended up going that direction and a meandering road to, to GroveMade. So GroveMade, we are a company of about 20 employees located in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we're a vertically integrated company that provides, that really focuses on workspace accessories since about a year ago, uh, but we've been through several iterations. So I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah, absolutely. Talk. And so when I took that architecture class, I was like, wow, this kind of blends the two. This is like the intersection of practical physics and engineering with art. And I was like, this is it. This is it. Uh, the problem is I had no idea what architects actually did. <laughs> so I worked really hard to get into graduate school, got into this dream school. And then when I got there, I popped my head out of the clouds and realized, wait a minute, I don't even know what architects do. And for someone that had no background, it was, it was really challenging. But I learned a lot. There was this particular art class that frustrated me. It was an abstract art class, and I wanted to quit. One person actually did quit because of this class. The teacher's name is Aldo Credico, and he's kind of notorious for screaming at his students, smoking in class. <laughs> he's like a legend. Exactly. 
but taking his class, I hated it. I had no idea was what I was doing because it was abstract. And then something clicked towards the later weeks. And I felt like that was the moment when I went from a normal person to somebody that thinks creatively. Uh, something about the pressure and the way he structured that class, uh, it pushes some people to, like me, who just get it. And then others, it completely rejects them. So it's kind of like an all or nothing type teaching philosophy. Right. Where like 90% of people hate his guts and the 10% think he's changed their life. You know? Isn't that amazing? So you were among the 10%? Yeah, I, I was I was really frustrated, actually. Uh, and so the next semester, uh, it's called winter session. They let you take any class from any discipline. So I took a furniture class and an industrial design class, and I loved it. What did you love it's, about it? Well, in architecture, it was a lot of big words and a lot of theory and a lot of conceptual that I didn't understand. I felt lost in furniture or ID. The scale was small, first of all, way mm -hmm. more manageable, and we could physically make the thing and critique the thing at full scale instead of imagining what it right what that model represents in the space and just having it more manageable it helped me realize i could chip away at this void of lack of understanding and a little bit at a time refine something to make it more and more towards what it should be what i found inspiring about ken's academic journey was that he was essentially flailing in architecture but by taking down the scale from a building to a piece of furniture, it really helped him see the full picture. And that got me thinking to, you know, when you move from theory into practice, you could start to see things from a different perspective. And as a strategist, when I think of say a brand purpose statement, for example, it can nail the brand essence and it could sound really great and pithy, but if it doesn't serve as a lens for the job that you actually do, then it's rooted in too much theory and should be revisited. I wanted to actually make stuff. In those classes, I got to actually be in the shop and physically make the products. So I approached my favorite professor at the time, this guy, Jim Barnes, and he was the only uh, practical architecture professor. He taught a class called uh, Materials and Methods where you'd learn about tensile strength versus compression or how to use concrete, that kind of thing. And I approached him with my problem. I told him I was frustrated. I wanted to make things. And his recommendation really threw me off his recommendation was to quit school. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was not something I had even occurred to me. I worked so hard to get there and it was such a lucky break for me to be at this really prestigious art school. And yeah. he's like, you know what? Like you need to get out into the real world and work and make stuff and see what happens from that. And you can always come back to school later. And it took me a while to digest his advice. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of fear. I could see that, yeah. And he basically convinced me that I had nothing to lose, that the worst that could happen is that doesn't work out and I come back. So he suggested I reach out to one of his friends, uh, this guy, Gerard Minakawa, former RISD grad in industrial design. He said this guy was doing some cool things out in Santa Barbara. I called him that day and we spoke for an hour and a half. And he convinced me to drop everything, fly across the country and go live at his house and work for him. <laughs> You're kidding. Yeah. In that same conversation? Yeah, it's my first conversation with Gerard. Oh my gosh. And a kind of an interesting twist, what, what made him want to hire me, he told me later, was these abstract drawings I did in that one uh, Aldecretico class. Oh, okay. Uh, so 
that was cool. I didn't. What What was it about that conversation? Do you think that made him even go there and say, you know what, you should pack up and just kind of live here for a bit? Well, now that I know him better, he's a guy that doesn't really overthink things. He's he's a trier. He, he's a doer. And if things don't work out, he just quickly moves on. Next step is I went out there to Santa Barbara. He said I could live in his house because it's really expensive there. When I got there, I expected like a room, maybe like a small room somewhere. But uh, it wasn't. It was this overhang at the back of his garage where the roof extended five more feet. No walls. <laughs> so that's where I was living. <laughs> With no walls? Yeah. Or there's a wall on one side and it was totally open <laughs> on the other two. Um Oh my gosh. I thought you were going to tell me the opposite. I thought you were going to say, <laughs> no, I had a wing to myself. No. Uh, oh my gosh. But, you know, I just went to the sporting goods store and bought the really thick sleeping bag. And I had a great view of the mountains. And I was really grateful to get an opportunity because I had no skill. I had nothing to offer this man. And basically that was like another really lucky break, pivotal step for me, uh, meeting this this man and living with him for two years, kind of absorbing, not just the skill, but kind of a mindset about yeah. art and life and business that I had never been exposed to before. It really changed my life. Up until that point, the, the paths I had imagined were more conventional, like getting a job basically. Mm-hmm. And this guy was kind of just carving his own path based on what he wanted to do creatively. And yeah the financial implications or all that was kind of secondary, you know? Talk about taking a leap of faith. My God, Ken leaves a graduate program at Rhode Island School of Design to get real world experience. And then after one referral and a phone conversation, he heads across the country to live in a space you'd keep a lawnmower, but he did it all in the name of creativity and to be mentored by somebody who was carving out his own creative path. There's such a humbleness to Ken's story where he's admitting that he had nothing to offer his mentor Gerard other than really to absorb and learn. And as Ken put it earlier, he had to chip away at this void of lack of understanding that he had by getting there and just doing it. I think that's a really inspiring lesson for all of us. I saw this guy who like never clocked out late at night. I, he's like sketching or building models or he didn't really have a job. It was his lifestyle. Right. And being it's around that was difference. hugely influential. Yeah. And he basically just became my mentor for skill, but also uh, life. So part of the deal before he convinced me to move out there was that I'd have to help him out with the Burning Man project for free. Oh. Volunteer. Yeah. And what did I'd that never entail? Heard of Burning Man. Yeah. I just went anyways. So year one, he wanted to build this huge bamboo structure and it was unofficial. It was just part of a camp. So Gerard was already working with bamboo. He was Mm -hmm. really interested in using the poles for, to build fences, architectural features. And Burning Man was kind of a place where he could experiment, kind of push the limits of that. And then professionally, he was also doing furniture out of the bamboo ply. Okay. And that was kind of the primary side that I was supposed to learn about is the furniture. I still remember what a profound experience that was, which a lot of burners can understand, especially being out there early and building these structures while no one's out there. And it was highly experimental. It was the early stages of his evolution to where he's actually doing the bamboo sculpture full-time now. And these are like the early days. Uh, I had never, my lifestyle had never been like that extreme 
an outdoor sense and also like that culture. So that, that was pretty eye opening. It made me really uncomfortable, but How I so? had a lot of fun still, you know, with, uh, an ex- extreme experience working and also enjoying the festival. And it's all about no rules, art, partying, and drugs, basically. Not everyone, but that's a big part of the culture. And that, that wasn't really my thing. So I probably wouldn't have gone as like a participant, but yeah. I was there to create. And that was an amazing experience to create it, but also to participate in something that was like out of my element. I just ran with it. And it was really profound, actually. I recommend Burning Man for anyone. You can do whatever you want here. You can be whatever you want. It's a complete freedom zone. Stuart Mangrum, Burning Man's first communication manager, said, and I quote, Welcome to nowhere. Its name is whatever you name it. Its wealth is whatever you bring it. Next week, it'll be gone, but next week might as well be never. You are here now. Whoa, that's some heady stuff, isn't it? Burning Man is about a week long where 70,000 or so participants build a temporary city in the middle of a desert where the artwork includes experimental and interactive sculptures and buildings, performances, and art cars, among other things. So here's Ken on his quest to learn how to build semi-permanent things like furniture to being in the middle of a desert building giant bamboo structures meant to be temporary and never to leave a trace. I'm not pretending to know anything about Buddhism here, but there's something very Zen about this story. Well, back at home in Santa Barbara, at our home base, he was kind of sort of teaching me the furniture, mm-hmm. but his, his teaching style was more of telling me what needed to be accomplished and leaving. <laughs> <laughs> Very little instruction. And we were selling the pieces I made. So what the typical pattern is I'd really struggle and get frustrated and I start feeling bad because I, I was not good at it. Whenever I would see him again, I could get his help. You know, and he'd be like, oh, actually, it's better if you do it this way. A can-if mindset, like, hey, we can get this done if we do this, this, and this. And it right. really instilled some intense problem-solving pressure, which therefore the t- skills. Terrifying at first, of course. Wow. Like said. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've taken a lot of things from that experience and carried it forward. You know, I was amazed at how much trust he put in me. So in the working world, it was more real challenges presented themselves, and it was very accelerated, especially because of the pressure. And for my learning style, it was much better. It was much, much better. So then tell me then the journey to Grove Made. So if you're a co-founder, there's another person involved too. That's right. And then how did that all happen? So after a couple of years, a couple more years in Santa Barbara, I decided to move back to Portland because that's where I'm from, to be closer to family. And I wanted to replicate what I was doing in Santa Barbara, but it was very difficult because it was kind of that kind of business is networking based. So there are all these young guys living in there in their mid twenties. And one of them was this guy, uh, Joe Mansfield, super creative guy. And he was running a laser engraving business out of one of his bedrooms in this beat up house. So every day uh, we'd be running our own businesses, but we're self-employed so we can do whatever we want. So we, we meet up every day uh, and jam on creative ideas we had or projects we were, 
pursuing or something cool we saw. That went on pretty intensely for a couple of years, constantly jamming on things. And one day, uh, Joe had this another one of his crazy ideas, which he, he still does. He was like, we should make a, a, this thing, this this iPhone thing. It's really going to blow up. We should make a, a wooden case for it. I didn't really care about iPhones. I didn't care about technology. I was like a guy working in his garage by himself kind of guy. Yep. And he was more like the entrepreneur tech. And he, he saw it that iPhones were going to be a big deal, a world changer. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to make a wood case for it i thought it was an interesting idea we didn't really put together a business model or anything it was more like hey can we actually figure out how to make this Mm -hmm. and then people will buy it let's take this business and make a business where we can make whatever we want that was that was our business model so definitely in the beginning he was bringing the e-commerce side he already had this e-commerce business uh laser engraving moleskins okay yep so his concept was to take that business model of applying art onto moleskin notebooks and doing that on wooden iPhone case, gotcha. which no one had done. And it was really, in hindsight, it was pretty brilliant. The world wanted something like that because when we eventually launched at the right time, it really exploded. But there's an interesting story in there, a failure. Mm-hmm. On the iPhone 3, which is what we were working on originally to develop that case. So it was a, it was a slog. Mm. It took us about nine months to develop the 3 case and get it right. And then when we launched, it was a total flop actually. We, we, we were really excited to launch it. And uh, basically what happened is an Apple engineer lost an iPhone 4, the next phone's prototype in a bar. And that was big news back then, this leak. And suddenly everyone's thinking about iPhone 4. Nobody cared about iPhone 3 stuff. And we were screwed. Now to the top secret iPhone prototype that was discovered in all places at a bar in Northern California. No one's quite sure how it ended up there, but pictures of the device are all over the internet months before its anticipated release this summer. Some people wondering if Apple actually planted it. It was, it was devastating. But you oh know what, we, um, we sulked for a day and then we're like, wait a minute, this is an opportunity. Like we know what the iPhone 4 looks like. We can get a head start on that. Right. And so we kind of guessed at what the dimensions were and we machined the case for the iPhone 4. And we had uh, Max, our, uh, one of our only two employees at the time, Photoshop the iPhone into it and we put it online the day of the iPhone 4 launch. So we put out a pre-order, <laughs> we went really aggressive and we got in Gizmodo, which is a huge tech blog. And this is just pure luck. Uh, they posted about us on the day the iPhone 4 launched. The article before it was about people breaking their screens because <laughs> it was glass. Mm-hmm. And at the time, those tech blogs had a really dominant amount of traffic. It's yeah. nothing like today where our attention is divided into so yeah. many mediums. I found a Gizmodo article from 2010 after the iPhone 4 launched. It was titled, Why I Love an Imperfect $70 Wooden iPhone Case. The author, Joel Johnson, posed his answer as, because it's the one I've always wanted. He actually complains a lot about the extra bulk and how the two halves of the case keep sliding off, but he keeps coming back saying, quote, but it's wood, it's not supposed to be perfect, and it's about as thin and precise as a wooden case could be. Wood that feels better the more I hold my iPhone. Wood that looks better with weather scuffs and scratches. Here's a review with more bad news than good, yet the author gives Grove made a ton of credit because he truly appreciated the attempt at making something beautiful and different. 
we were an overnight business. We had, I can't remember, five or 6,000 orders in one day. And suddenly the problems shifted from not enough to too many, too many orders. So that, oh the gosh. next challenge was actually the most terrifying. The most stressful was taking all these people's money and then not having a product that's scalable. So first we had to figure out make, how to make one, which took a while. And then we had to make thousands of them. No infrastructure, no management, no employees to do that. Besides. Oh my gosh. So that was probably the most stressful time in my life and my business career is feeling behind like that. So you can start to see how stressful this business model is because the 10,000 order sounds great if it's dispersed over a year, but it's in like two days, right? And all those people want it immediately. Joe and I were, we could both see that the iPhone model was flawed. And at least we saw that. So we were trying to diversify and both from a business standpoint and neither of us were excited about starting a case company, right? That wasn't the vision. I mean, the vision was pretty loose. Both of us were really creative. We wanted to have enough fans that we could make whatever we wanted. That's right. what our hope was. I like Ken's thought process here, honestly. Thinking if you find people who love your work, it never matters what you make. It's what goes into the process of delivering the best product or service that really sets the brand apart. GroveMade didn't have a solid business model. They just happened upon it, and they were driven to create cool stuff and find the people who actually appreciated it, and they built a business around them. There's a reason why you can't find their products on Amazon. They're not for everyone, and that's okay. So what were some of the first products you started to develop that were not related to the iPhone or technology? Our first stab at it was actually what we ended up with now, the desk collection. Kind of an interesting roundabout story of how we came up with that. But we, had a, we got an idea to make a monitor stand, a really nice looking monitor stand. Because when I was at RISD, uh, one of my friends, good friends, he actually started, he's one of the three guys that started Airbnb. Around 2013, I visited him and he was showing me their like really fancy offices. And they had hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital at the time. And everything you can imagine, right? Nicest everything. Yeah. But their monitors were propped up on books and boxes. Uh-huh. And Joe and I looked at each other and like simultaneously, it was so obvious that the need and the idea that this design-centric company that had an infinite budget couldn't find something. So we're like, we got to make some. Right. And it percolated for like a year or so, but we finally designed something and it, it looked pretty good. Uh, but suddenly when we were going to photograph it, the photograph didn't look good because all the other things in the photograph weren't ours. So we're like, hey, we got to design all this other stuff. All the surround stuff, you mean? Surrounding stuff, yeah. So we designed uh, planters and pen pots, a keyboard tray, wrist rest, and a mouse pad. And design, that was the first time designing collection. It, it really kind of kicked my butt. I got a lot of help from outside designers, just friends that were designers, constantly trying to solve these puzzles. From when you design a collection, it's much more complex than designing one single product because you might change one thing. One product might evolve because some manufacturing constraint or something. But now the other products don't work well with it or that kind of thing. Right. Well, that's the thing I've noticed about your collections is that, and I mean, and that's the thing that I, that was immediately drawn to is that it's not just this one product. And while you might need that one product, you see the entire 
desktop and it all works together and it's all seamless and it's, you know, thoughtfully designed and thoughtfully crafted and the sizes are just the right size and textures and, and all of that. I'm really glad you noticed that because that's actually the majority of the work is designing how the products work well together and the product strategy is a lot of the work and a lot of I where can we can only imagine. Value. Yeah. Yeah. And the, that desk original desk collection 2014 was the first taste of what a collection could do. Mm -hmm. uh, What's the problem that you think your products at Groove made are solving for people? I think people need to feel like they want to work. Yeah. If, if somebody like yourself who's really passionate about their work, yeah, you want, you want to feel like you want to do it. And that has all these like cultural and psychological elements, but we come in on the space element. It's space. It's feeling good about your space where it can keep up with whatever internal inspiration you have for your work. You know, just like there's so many elements being in the zone at work where you feel in flow, you know, you got to be in a good place physically and emotionally. And I think the missing piece to, for a lot of people is, is the physical environment. Uh, the objects around us, especially in our genre, tend to be pretty uninspired, as most mass-produced objects are, right? It's, yeah. They're, they're designed for cost and scale, and that's right for most people, right? But there's a select chunk of society that is truly pushing to be exceptional, and they're really passionate about their work. And for them, they need something better, and that's where we come in. I love that. For a long time, we thought it was mostly like traditional creative people, but that's really switched to where we can't really just bucket people like that. Mm -hmm. I think the overarching theme is they care about their work. I love they really that. care about their work and distribute it. I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot of traditional creatives, but there's lots of programmers. There's lots of lawyers and business people. Anybody who's really passionate about the work and have some design sensitivity. Does Grove made have a higher purpose that's bigger than making money and, and should it? Mm -hmm. Well, we say our mission is to make work meaningful. You know, in the direct sense, it's our products. Hopefully people are using our products to help them do more meaningful work. But a lot of it's internal meaning. Like I really believe that if, uh, if a group of people feels like whatever they're doing is what they want to be doing and it's meaningful to them, that's the most direct path to doing it really good work and great products. I think that's the genesis. Mm -hmm. So it's a little circular, uh, but that, that's our mission. It's, it's, it's a constant struggle, but that's our North Star. That part is hard because, and like in a lot of the products we make, the quality is determined by how much somebody actually cares, the person who's assembling it or making it. And it's directly related. It goes back to our mission. I, our hope, theory, is that, hey, if we have an inspired team, the end result is going to be better. Mm -hmm. I picture your offices to, you know, have like your mission and your brand values painted on a wall somewhere. Do you have that? <laughs> They're not painted, but there's giant posters. <laughs> what are what are some That's of the brand up. values of Grove Made? Sure. Well, my favorite one is uh, always get better. The other ones kind of tie into it, like be open, embrace truth is another one. But always get better is is kind of the key one that keeps me coming back to work. And yeah. usually when we interview our employees, like, why are you here? It's because they want to learn and get better. And so we, we try to create an environment where that's important. And, and that's kind of what makes it fun. It's, it's for certain people, just that feeling that things are getting better. You can have input and make things better. That makes you want to do it. That's the main one. Always keeps coming back. Last question. Why will you not give up? Well, with this company, we've almost gone under several times. Yeah, what motivates me to keep going in those times? 
that's I could probably speak for the team. A lot of it is about the people, right? Like you feel like you have to succeed because other people are depending on you. I feel that, and other people on the team feel that too. When things are when, when the times are tough, like we're pulling through for each other because we want this company to keep going. Well, I know that if you vanish tomorrow, you have a new fan that would absolutely miss you, and that would be me. And I've talked about Grove Made to anyone who would care to listen. So, uh, so I was very excited to talk to you today. So I appreciate your yeah. time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. I told you the story was a lot bigger than desk accessories. So first, what we can learn from Ken's story is the importance of moving from theory to practice and learning by doing. At some point, we have to stop reading about entrepreneurship or content marketing or diversity and just do it already. At least there's a lesson in failure as we heard from Ken. There are zero lessons when you do nothing. The second thing I heard loud and clear was to be open to exploration because Ken really, he quickly got comfortable with being uncomfortable. From quitting a graduate program, moving across the country to live in a shed, to experiencing Burning Man, and then fulfilling furniture orders for his traveling boss. That whole journey of resiliency couldn't happen if he wasn't open to chance and really hungry to learn. When Ken talks about trading ideas with his co-founder before Grove Made was even a company, he describes it as meeting up every day to jam on creative ideas or projects that they were pursuing. We often think that we need an official title or skill to think creatively, which of course is not true. We should be creating space in our day or our week for exploration and to find that person or people who inspire us to keep those ideas flowing. And finally, if you're a person who works at a desk in any way, the Grove Made philosophy starts simply with the most direct path to doing really good work is creating really good space. And whether that space is slightly bigger than your laptop or it's a room with a view, they create with professional passion in mind. And as Ken put it, there is a select chunk of society that is truly pushing to be exceptional. And for them, they need something better. And that's where Grove Made comes in. Well, I couldn't agree more. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. You can learn more about what we do at brandcrudo.com. I want to thank Ken Tomita from Grove Made for giving us new meaning to mastering your craft. You must check their stuff out at grovemade.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review this episode. It's the only way the podcast reaches new people. A quick 60 seconds is all it takes, and your feedback would mean the world to me. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>